This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Pastoralists were returning from nearby Benry State with hundreds of cattle they had bailed out from officials enforcing an anti-open grazing law when the bomb exploded among them. Sule says 40 of them were killed and many of us were injured. That's reporter Timothy Obiezu on a bombing that killed Nigerian herders. Details coming up also. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations pledges to work with Mozambique on the Security Council. And Pope Francis plans to meet young Catholics when he visits the continent next week. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Officials in Nigeria say the death toll from an attack on animal herders has risen to 40. The strike took place Wednesday in Rukubi, a village on the border between Nigeria's Nasarawa and Benue states, a region known for ethnic and religious conflict. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja, Nigeria. Nasarawa State Governor Abdullahi Sule has refuted claims that a military jet bombed pastoralists and said Thursday it was an unidentified drone operated from an unknown location that exploded. He said he has deployed security operatives to the area to prevent tensions or reprisals. I have been on it all night, you know, trying to resolve the matter with uh, uh, Chief of Defense Staff, Mir Allah and all the security agencies, including our commissioner of police, to ensure that we continue to douse the tension that may generate as a result of this. Pastoralists were returning from nearby Benry State with hundreds of cattle they had bailed out from officials enforcing an anti-open grazing law when the bomb exploded among them. Sule says 40 of them were killed and many of us were injured. Many herds were also affected. A Nigerian Air Force spokesperson did not take calls from VOA for comment. However, Nasarawa State Police spokesman Nansel Ramham told VOA by phone that authorities are investigating. Farmers and herders in central Nigeria have been clashing over grazing land for decades. Benue and Nasarawa are the most affected. An umbrella group for cattle breeders in Nigeria, the Miyeti Allah Cattle Breeders Association of Nigeria, MACBAN, condemned the attack Thursday and asked authorities to capture the perpetrators. Abuja-based Beacon Security Analyst Kabiru Adamu says the attacks could be the result of wrong profiling. Nobody at that date, not the military, not the governor, a government rather, and the Mirti Allah Cattle Breeders Association is, has been able to clarify what type of incendiary attack it was. Uh, the media has created this monster called Fulani Hatsman. It's been highlighted by the media to the extent that stigmatization and profiling has occurred. But the Nigerian military has in the past recorded accidental airstrikes on civilians while battling Islamist militants and armed gangs in the northern region. In January 2017, more than 100 people were killed when a military jet hit a camp housing people displaced by jihadist violence in the town of Ran in northeast Borno State. The military blamed the attack on a lack of appropriate markings of the area. 
last year, an arms trade between the United States and the Nigerian government was stalled due to concerns about extrajudicial killings. Adamu says authorities should be more proactive. By now, I expect that the National Assembly would have set up a committee to look at this latest incident in Doma, identify what went wrong, and make sure that, that um, they introduce measures to prevent a reoccurrence. Um, it could have been mistaken identity, poor intelligence that may have suggested uh, the movement was by bandits. Security is a significant challenge and a major issue as Nigeria prepares for presidential and parliamentary polls next month. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Some Nigerian political analysts think younger voters will play a major role in the general elections in February and March. Mike Mboni reports from Port Harcourt. Professor Mahmoud Yakubu, chairman of the Independent National Electoral Commission of Nigeria, or INEC, says 93.4 million people are eligible to vote in the presidential and national assembly elections February 25th and governorship and state house of assembly elections on March 11. Yakubu told the media briefing in Abuja that more than 37 million or 39.65% of the registered voters between the ages of 18 and 34, while 33.4 million or 35.75% are between the ages of 35 and 49. The chairman said another 17.7 million or 18.94% are between the ages of 50 and 69. Some political analysts think youths have the edge to determine winners because they comprise the largest bloc. Leko Ige is a public affairs analyst based in Portakot in the Niger Delta region of Nigeria. Yeah, surely, um, and the youth can do that either positively or negatively. When I say positively, I mean if we have a large turnout of people within that age bracket of 18 to 45, if we have a very large turnout of this age group, then it means that we have a sizable number of Nigerians turning up to vote. Ige says if the youths fail to come out on election day, the outcome will be determined by other age brackets. Anita Ogonna, a Portacot-based journalist, believes youths carry the most clout and will determine the winners. In fact, the, the election is for the youth. Um, there is no gainsaying uh, about it. From the rack centers where uh, people are collecting their voters, you see that the majority of people there are youths, which means these youths are ready to come out. And t- even though some of them are, are doing it for business, from what I if you, uh, interview some of them, they will tell you uh, uh, if we don't bring it, they won't give us certain things. But I can tell you that, of course, from the collection centers, the youths are majority the people collecting their PVCs. Very few of them are old people. So it means that the youths are truly out to cast their vote and take back their country. Fosina Waneku is a Portacot resident. She says youths are determined to participate in the general elections. The 2023 election is an election that's Every individual, even 
a newborn baby is prepared for. Because you find out that the youths are the worst hits in the last um, eight years. A lot of them actually have no employment. A lot of them can hardly fend for themselves. So the, the figures that are out there is just... Um, it's an evidence of what would come or what we would see in the 2023 election. Youths have shown their determination to vote and exert control over the country's future by getting their permanent voters' cards. Mahmoud Yakubu, chairman of Nigeria's electoral body, says the commission is determined to conduct free, fair, and credible elections. This is Mike Mbonye for VOA News in Portacot, Nigeria. VOA. VOA Africa would like to hear from you. Send us a text message or a voice note on WhatsApp 24-7. Simply dial the international code plus one, then 202-258-3076. We are always happy to hear from you. The number again is international code plus one, then 202-258-3076. The U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Greenfield, says greater efforts are needed in Mozambique to push back insurgents who are spreading south from the northern province of Cabo Delgado. Greenfield was in Mozambique Friday as she makes a three-nation tour of Africa. Charles Mangowaro reports from the capital Maputo. Addressing a media briefing at the end of a two-day visit, Greenfield said the United States is willing to work with Mozambique in the United Nations Security Council. Early this month, Mozambique took its one-year non-permanent seat on the Security Council. It came at a time when the armed insurgency in Cabo Delgado province in the north of the country remains the main security challenge with some attacks claimed by the extremist group Islamic State. So we have to redouble our efforts uh, to push back on, on terrorist actions and the activities that are terrorizing ordinary citizens such as the citizens of, of Cabo Delgado, and we're working closely with the government to address those issues. Greenfield, who began her African tour in Ghana on Wednesday, travels on to Kenya from Mozambique. The insurgent group in Mozambique calls itself Ansar al-Suna, or followers of tradition, but it is known throughout Mozambique as al-Shabaab. It has no known connection to the group of the same name in Somalia. It has been occupying several districts in the capital Delgado province since 2017. To date, almost 5,000 people have been killed in the attacks and almost 1 million people displaced according to humanitarian organizations. Charles Mawiro for VOA News, Maputo, Mozambique. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Tunisians go to the polls Sunday. For a second round of parliamentary elections, as activists say, the government is cracking down on dissent. The French news agency AFP says 262 candidates, including 34 women, are running for 131 seats. Only 11% of registered voters turned out last month for the first round of voting. The newly reformed legislature, will, uh, with little power to sanction the government of President Kais Saeed, a new constitution Said backed last year gives his office almost unlimited executive power. 
The vote comes as courts have jailed many of his critics, including leaders of opposition parties. Some analysts say recent visits to Africa by high-level U.S. and Russian officials signal a new salvo in those countries' supposed race for Africa. Moscow's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, and Washington's Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, met officials in several African nations. Political experts say Russia cannot match the U.S. in economic cooperation with Africa, and so its motives in Africa are more questionable. Darren Taylor reports. International relations scholar John Stremlau says there's no better indication of the differing intentions of America and Russia in Africa than the countries Yellen and Lavrov visited. The U.S. Treasury Secretary focused on stronger democracies, such as Senegal, South Africa and Zambia. Moscow's foreign minister also took in South Africa, but included authoritarian regimes like Angola, Eswatini and Eritrea. Foreign relations expert Kaya Sitole says most of Africa's sitting on the fence with much the same attitude. If our Russian friends say we'd like you to collaborate, we're not going to say no. And if American friends say we'd like to collaborate, we're not going to say no. But, says Sitole, the war in Ukraine means the world, and not just the U.S. and European alliance against the Kremlin and Russia are giving Africa unprecedented importance. You do not send a mere functionary, you send someone as senior as Lavrov and you send someone as senior as Yellen in order to be able to exhibit that we do actually take this partner seriously and we also want to be able to keep them on our side. Sitole says Moscow's and Washington's intention in Africa is clear. They both want to be able to count on Africa being with them during significant events in the future, especially if a third world war were to happen. In Angola, Lavrov accused the West of using colonial methods to pressure developing countries to turn against Russia. He maintained that good relations between Moscow and Africa are not subject to geopolitical events. They're historic and based on a spirit of solidarity and support. Lavrov said his government's committed to development in all areas in Africa. But Stremlau says Russian trade with Africa is minuscule and Moscow's aid and investment on the continent almost non-existent, with its greatest presence being the Wagner group of mercenaries fighting on behalf of dictatorships. In contrast, says Stremlau, America's pumping billions of dollars into helping the continent fight the ravages of climate change, funding health care and more. There is the pending African Growth and Opportunity Act renewal and issues about trade and investment, which are huge with America. But I wouldn't exaggerate U.S. interest or influence. That's got to be treated very uh, circumspectly because it really isn't that great. Look at the defiance that South Africa is showing on Ukraine for whatever reasons. The South African government refuses to condemn Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It's also announced joint naval exercises with Russia for late February. Stremlau says President Cyril Ramaphosa's administration is just the most extreme example of African countries accepting help from Washington 
yet remaining friends with Moscow. There is a complex relationship between America and Africans that go back to the period when the U.S. supported apartheid, that go back to uh, slavery and racism that are, are endemic. And we're struggling to deal with them. And we do it. Sitole says while the Biden government's probably sensitive to these complexities, he's sure that behind closed doors, Washington's putting pressure on Africans. No country is going to say, well, it's fine if you collaborate with our enemies, we're still going to give you everything that you ask for. It just doesn't happen. Sooner or later, say analysts, Africa will have to choose one or the other. An alliance with the West that previously oppressed Africans and still sometimes discriminates against the continent, but that's willing to invest in developing Africa, or partnering with an axis of authoritarian regimes, including Russia, China, Iran and North Korea. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. On VOA Africa Radio, we let the sound tell you the story. News, sports, science and entertainment. Available to you 24-7. Tune in on your local FM stations. We are also available on the medium waves, 909 kHz and 1530 kilohertz. Our short waves are 6080, 15580, 4930, 15165, 15580 and 17530 kHz. VOA Africa, your trusted source for news and information. Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International are calling on Morocco not to extradite a Shiite Muslim to his homeland, Saudi Arabia, where they say he could face torture and an unfair trial. Reuters News says Hassan al-Rabia was arrested at Marrakesh Airport on January 14th. Saudi Arabia has charged him with helping a terrorist illegally leave the country, a reference to allegedly helping one of his brothers leave the country. Amnesty says if deported, Rabia would likely be tried by Saudi Arabia's specialized criminal court, which activists say denies defendants access to lawyers, holds suspects incommunicado, and uses torture to extract confessions. The Moroccan government will rule on Rabia's extradition after a court determines the legality of the case. Pope Francis heads to Africa next Tuesday, first to the Democratic Republic of Congo and then South Sudan. The visit comes at a defining moment in what is regarded as a fairly progressive papacy. Theologists and other observers point out that the Catholic Church is witnessing its fastest growth in Africa. They say the Catholics are not simply growing in number on the continent, they are reinventing and reinterpreting the faith. And Tal Alimasi is President Emeritus for the National Association of African Catholics in the U.S., and he tells me the Pope will not only be speaking with African Catholic and political leaders, but he will also be listening to young Africans who he calls 
the church of now. Well, uh, again, as, as I said, uh, I, I, men- I mentioned what some people have called the youth bulge of, uh, uh, of Africa at this, at this time. Now, when you come to Pope Francis, Francis's commitment to the youth, I, I guess that is already uh, documented. And so if you take all that and put it in the context of this synodal process, so you understand that as he looks to Africa, as he, he goes to the DRC and the Sudan this time, he, he will try to also get uh, this new blood, as I call it, into understanding what you know, the church should and, uh, and is doing for, for the people. And that includes talking to powers that be. You know, and that is, uh, you know, um, whether it's uh, at the government level, whether it's uh, with the NGOs, whether it's uh, with what I would call the community leaders. So all those things have been sort of uh, mixed in so that they can, to some extent, uh, show not only solidarity with the young people, but um, project the, the future of, of, the, of the church. You mentioned the Pope will be will head to DRC and the South Sudan. Why DRC and why South Sudan in particular? Oh, uh, in particular, I think, um, apart from what I mentioned before uh, as part of the synodal process, uh, there's uh, this thing, Pope uh, Francis has been talking so much about the solidarity with the people who are suffering. And um, he particularly has, has pinpointed the sufferings of the people of the DRC. He had, um, to my uh, knowledge, you know, he had uh, made, led many prayers for the, for the people of the DRC and um, trying, in trying to, to make sure that um, the world pays attention to what's happening in, in the DRC especially in the eastern part of the DRC. Uh, as you probably know, the DRC counts the highest number of Catholics in the continent in terms of numbers uh, in, in the population. So that's one reason that, you know, to go there and show solidarity there. As far as the South Sudan is concerned, as you know, South Sudan was the Catholic part, really, mainly Catholic part of the former Sudan. And so now you have this small country that is a majority um, Catholic, uh, but also has other Christians. And it's time for, for, them, for the Pope to show them that the suffering they've gone through, uh, they internally displace people that they count. Uh, that, uh, you know, uh, their cries he has heard and that the church is really uh, in solidarity with them. Um, as a matter of fact, I think that you know that when uh, Pope Francis will leave the DRC after meeting with uh, women who have been uh, uh, victims of, uh, women and men who have been victims of the, uh, the, the long war in the DRC and meeting with uh, members of parliament and other people in the government, He's heading to Sudan, where not only he's going to meet with the uh, members of, of those displaced communities, but there's going to be what they, they have entitled 
the ecumenical pilgrimage of peace, and that he will meet with the bishop, or Archbishop of Canterbury and um, the moderator of the General Assembly of Churches um, of Scotland in Juba for this ecumenical ceremony for peace. So that, to me, is uh, the take particular uh, visit of the Pope in Africa. That was uh, Ntal Alimasi, President Emeritus for the National Association of African Catholics in the U.S. He talked to me from Washington, D.C. And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Adrias Rigas, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.